Nachos. What do you think about that? I hated it. Why do you hate that so much? Don't know. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is Stevie Cohen and Hayden Bow. Today we're doing a solo episode. Your favorite, as indicated by the nacho. No. Yeah. Oh, screw the nacho. No. Caesar, keep that in. Caesar, trim <laughs> that up. <laughs> um, anyway, today we talk about a variety of topics. Uh, we talk a little bit about science and training, uh, specifically the differences between powerlifting and bodybuilding training. My temporary uh, switch into bodybuilding and how that's going. I give you guys an update of kind of how my training has changed and how my diet has changed, um, as well as what are some of the the principles that I've been learning through working with Ben Pakalski about bodybuilding and and how much my my understanding of these principles and my mindset has changed when it comes to training for something as specific as as bodybuilding. We talk about my diet and how that's changed as well. And we talk about research, specifically why most published research findings are false and why people should stop regurgitating research papers as if there's some sort of absolute law or absolute truth. And finally, we talk about the UFC, uh, the latest the latest fight that happened in Abu Dhabi, Fight Island, which was pretty exciting. Um, talk about the highlights and some of our opinions. And how and daddy won $2,000. He didn't won $2,000 and guess now he has a betting uh, problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it starts, right? You come out hot and then you lose it all? Yeah. Well, I'll do my best not to lose it all. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Ghost Strong Equipment. You can check them out on their site, uh, www.ghoststrongequipment.com. They make custom-made gym equipment, so check them out. Capron. Don't say that word. Why? It's not a good word. You want me to learn Spanish? Not the, <laughs> not those words. Stevie's been asking me to learn Spanish, so I heard the best way to do that is to just immerse yourself in a bunch of Spanish TV shows. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they've all been uh, like cartel dramas, so I've just learned all the bad words. What word else did you learn? Puta. Nice. What else? Uh, the last one was Mexican, so mm-hmm. I heard... So I heard uh, Pincha is mm-hmm. like if you put that in front of something, it's mm-hmm. like it like emphasizes it almost. Like, okay. So, pincha pendejo. Yeah, See? it emphasizes it, but it's like not a good word either. It's also bad. Yeah. Oh, nice bonus. Nice, Hade. That's uh, good job. Yeah. Can you form a sentence with all those beautiful words you learned? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to throw them all. I don't want to overwhelm people. Okay. It's too impressive. I think. But anyways, we're freestyling on this podcast. No plan. It's fun and games. It's pretty much how we do everything else. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. What have you been up to? Um, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of the other stuff. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, no, I um, have <laughs> been ch- <laughs> changing pace a little bit. You know, um, pandemic kind of ruins ruined every single plan that anyone made for anything. So... Initially, I was just honestly trying to, as far as training goes, just trying to find that joint training again, just doing a bunch of conditioning, trying out new sports. I picked up boxing. Um, but then, you know, when you're, when you're goal oriented and when you're competitive, I think that 
you always crave not being on schedule until you're off off schedule. Uh-huh. And then you immediately want to be on schedule again when you have the type of personality that I have. Like well, you just kind of just want to get back into it, you know, and want to have a goal and want to have a plan and want to see progress and want to, you know, check out days until the, 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 the time, the time that you were going to compete or perform or whatever it is. So I felt like that was, I, I started missing it sooner, way sooner than I anticipated. And um, still been been battling with a couple of nagging injuries. One of them is my back. And so I just wanted to really give myself time for the first time in in five years to let my body heal and feel better and, and allow myself enough time to really get the itch of training again, you know, because powerlifting is one of those sports where if you don't want it, you're not going to get it. You know what I mean? And I always say that it's like, the only way to, to continue getting stronger is adding more weight to the bar. There's no, people get so, so, uh, stuck in the five sets of six, five sets of eight, 10 sets of three, whatever, that they think that that's going to accumulating volume is going to bypass the fact that you actually have to work hard and put a right. weight on your back. That's going to feel really uncomfortable. And it just doesn't happen that way. Like eventually it'll get to a point where you're going to have to put something on the bar that terrifies you. And you're going to have to make that conscious decision of whether or not you want to get better or you don't, whether or not you're hungry for that weight or you don't really care. So that's why it's so important to take, to take legitimate breaks from powerlifting, um, and, and really mentally, you know, disconnecting from it so that you can light that fire back up. So, um, like I was saying about having, having a goal and working towards something most recently, I've been doing bodybuilding. Um, everybody want to be a bodybuilder, <laughs> uh, you know, just, just to take up a, another challenge and learn about a different style of training. It's something that I've never done. I've, you know, I've, I, I can't name you a single time where, where I've focused only on training to look a certain way. You know, I've always been mm-hmm. chasing a, you know, a faster half marathon time or getting a, getting a most valuable, valuable player award or a certain number or whatever that might be. So this is the first time that I'm, I'm training for aesthetics to look a certain way. And I'm still unsure of whether or not I want to actually step on stage. Um, but if not, I mean, something that I'm really interested in doing is, uh, trying to be on the cover of a magazine, but not necessarily a fitness magazine, like not necessarily, uh, a training muscle and fitness style magazine, but more so like a fashion one. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I was just thinking a lot about how there's not a lot of representation of athletic bodies in high-end fashion. And I thought it'd, it'd be really cool yeah, to high-end fashion only yeah, casts absolute dorks as their it's models. True. Have you seen yeah. all of like, like Gucci advertisements? It's like, where do they even find these people? Yeah. Yeah. Weird. I know. So, so yeah, that's tentatively something that I want to get into. I think you could do both too. I mean, yeah. if you're cut, cutting for a show, you might as well do a cover shoot for some, for uh, a fitness magazine. Yeah. But, and, and then also do the. Yeah. And you know, it's been interesting if, if, if any of you listeners have followed me for a while, you might've noticed that there's, there's been a very clear kind of change in the type of content that I've been putting out as far as not necessarily getting rid of, of, or drastically changing my content, but I've been putting out stuff that I used to avoid 
because of, I don't even know, because I, I feel like I, I thought I had to behave in a certain way due to the fact that I'm a female lifting more weight than most men. You know, I felt like because I, because I chose this as my athletic career, then I had to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, you know, and not show my feminine side at all. Not show, not show vulnerability, not show, you know, like who I really am, what kinds of kind of feelings I have for, of due to fear of, of being, I don't know, called weak or, or, Mm -hmm. or because I felt like it didn't go with, uh, with a, with a persona that I've been, that I've been portraying for the last five years, you know? And so it's been an interesting kind of like self-discovery period for me as well to just expose those sides of me as well. And not only expose it, but explore them. Right. I've, I've talked a few times about exploring my femininity and my feminine side and, uh, it, it is truly empowering, especially when you, when you combine it with something as powerful as heavy lifting, mm-hmm. just that kind of combination I think is, is, is really, really powerful. Yeah, I agree. And it, it's interesting that you say that you felt like, you know, you had to portray the sort of like tough, courageous, you know, whatever sort of image because of the, uh, the route that you took in the sport that you compete in. But I think being like a little bit more vulnerable and showing some of the not as glamorous sides of your life actually fits that narrative really well. You know what I mean? It it is courageous to put yourself out there and to show vulnerability and stuff like that. At the same time, it is a fine line to walk because like the culture right now is to just overshare everything. Mm -hmm. And it's like you don't want to be that person because that's just annoying. Yeah. But you also want to have a good representation of, you know, if you're trying to be a role model, then your life as a whole, some of the good, some of the bad, the good training days, the bad training days, you know, yeah, mental right. health stuff, all that. You're right about that, about it being a fine line. I think as a rule of thumb, I try to share things that I, that I think would make people feel like they're not alone right? and, and be very cautious in kind of the words that I choose and how much information I share about my own struggles, because I don't think it's relevant. Right. I think like the most important, at least the most important thing for me with like some of the struggles that I've had is that to, to feel that you're not alone and to, to find people who you might look up to, uh, that are going through the same struggles that have either overcome them or, or that are, not afraid of who they are and of talking about the issues that they're going through, you know, to a certain extent. So, yeah. The only time I feel like it it can be counterproductive is when, you know, people are are really encouraged to talk about, um, like what's the proper term for it? Pity party or or like mental illness, you know, different like anxiety, depression, all that kind of stuff, which is, uh, it shouldn't be a taboo topic, but I think when it's so positively reinforced, that some people make that part of their identity mm-hmm. and now they're, you know, you become Steffi Cohen, the girl powerlifter with anxiety or whatever the the route is. And I, I don't think that should be the thing. I, th- I don't think that should define you. I think it should be something that's there and something that maybe people talk about, but not like that's your, your platform. Yeah, you of know? course, of course. And, you know, sharing for the purpose of empowering others is different than sharing for the purpose of victimizing yourself. Exactly. And it all has to do with, with, I guess the delivery and how frequent and how much you're sharing. But 
anyway, yeah, back to the topic of bodybuilding. It's been really interesting. I've learned so much. Uh, I'm grateful that I met Ben Pakulski a few years ago through Jordan Shallow, actually. And, you know, we've, we've kept in touch ever since. And the opportunity presented where he, he was willing to kind of take me under his wing and teach me the ropes of bodybuilding, which to be honest with you, before I started working with him, I didn't even feel like I needed, you know, I almost, I, I want to, I want to almost call it like arrogant to a certain extent, like in my own head, now that I'm removed from the situation, it's like, Oh, I know how to train. Like I can train myself in bodybuilding as well, uh-huh. but I, it, it's the same thing as when people say that squat bench and deadlift is, is simple or easy, right? You know, Oh, you just have to go to the gym and do a bunch of reps and lift heavier every time. Well, yeah, it's, and, it's, and it's easy to do it shitty. Yeah. It's like, is football easy? Well, you, sure, you can throw a ball 10 feet to your buddy, but can you play in the NFL? Like, there's a big distinction between those two things. 100%. So, there's just so much that I had no idea about as far as just training methodologies and principles go. Um, and and a lot of things that I had to to adjust my my mindset around as well. So, you know... Moving from powerlifting into body bodybuilding, obviously the training styles are completely different. You go from focusing on gaining strength in one particular movement to trying to mold your body in a specific way, right? Either it's growing your shoulders, tightening your waist, growing your glutes, your hamstrings, whatever that might be. Yeah, it's a simple concept, but if you haven't been introduced to it... Um it's something that you just might not think about. So do you want to maybe explain how, how, you know, sort of like how power, a powerlifting movement, let's use the squat. What's, what's different about squatting for a powerlifter versus squatting for a bodybuilder who's, you know, looking to develop a certain muscle group? Yeah. So there's a lot of debate, debate surrounding the topic of what the best movement is to grow a particular body part. And there's so much research out there from biomechanists trying to find this one particular movement that leads to the most growth based on uh, moment arms and levers and and uh, range of motion and tension and all of these like complex metrics when it can be simply broken down into the main difference from a person who's focused on getting stronger and a person who's focused on growing bigger muscles is that the person who's focused on getting stronger needs to focus on making the movement that they're choosing to um, test their strength at as efficient as possible. So you're constantly training the motion, you're training your nervous system to move in a certain way. Your body is subconsciously looking for compensations and movement deviations that allow you to lift that the most amount of weight. Right. Uh Whereas when you're training for hypertrophy or to build a certain part of your, of your body of, or a certain muscle, you're looking to challenge that muscle as much as possible. So you go from making a heavy weight feel perceivably lighter in strength training to making a lightweight feel perceivably heavier. So an an objectively lightweight feels subjectively heavier in bodybuilding. So how do you do that? And, and that's why we have to shift the conversation from what, what's the best exercise for X, Y, or Z body part to 
Let's just focus on making sure that the movement movement that you're choosing is actually challenging the muscle that you're trying to grow. That was kind of like my biggest, uh, shift in the way that I, that I understand training that, you know, that Ben has taught me and was so eye opening that the few sessions that I've had with him, you know, something as simple as a single arm pull down or a lat pull down. Um, you know, it's an exercise that's supposed to target your lats and, at no point during those sessions, during our back training session, was I able to feel like my lats were engaged. You know, does that, does that mean that my lats aren't going to grow? No. Like anyone can go into the gym and do three, four sets of 10 particular and particular body part, particular exercise and see improvements. Right. But that doesn't mean that it's the best way. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think we, we're at a point where we're, there's just so much information out there. So many books, so many people are, you know, YouTube, so many podcasts that we don't have to train in the dark anymore. You know, we don't, we don't have to go into training blind and just hope for the best. We, we have the technology and the brains and the, the, the insight to optimize training as best as possible so that we can get as much results as fast as possible with as little effort as we can. What? Yeah. And I think that a lot of times people get paralyzed by like over information or too much information. And it's like, wait, what do we, what do they say? It's like trying to take a drink out of a fire hose. You know, it's just too much all at once. And people don't know what, you know, there's a study to prove every different methodology of training is the superior one. That's actually why I love talking about it on this podcast is because uh, we have so- you who is trained to properly read studies and interpret studies and you can look at all those things and make an educated decision that then we can share with the the followers of, you know, what is the actually appropriate way mm-hmm. to, to go about things. And what's interesting, uh, about what you said with, uh, about training with Ben is when we were doing that training session, you know, a lot of times, like you said, someone can go do a lat pull down and maybe you don't even really feel it in your lat and you'll make some lat progress. But when you do the exercise properly for hypertrophy, you feel that particular muscle that you're trying to work in a way that you never have before. Mm -hmm. You can literally feel the muscle being being stressed, fatigued or pumped. Mm -hmm. And that was super unique to me in a lot of different areas where Mm -hmm. I had never felt that before. Mm -hmm. The the and the underlying principle here is. You know, how, so how do you actually challenge the muscle outside of choosing a, an exercise that is right for you, for your particular body part? But outside of that, like the, the principle is, should be the same for any exercise. So say that you're training your hamstrings. This is, this, I think it's the easiest one for people to understand. You're training your hamstrings. Now your hamstrings originate from your ischial tuberosity, which is your, your, your hip bones where you're sitting down on, uh, and they, they attach on your tibia, on the back of your tibia. So their dual action, they both extend the hips and flex the knee. And in order for you to challenge that muscle as much as possible, you need to anchor or stabilize the uh, origin of that muscle, which in this case is your hip. Now, when I see people doing, and this is including me, so not people, like I used to do this wrong all the time. Your person. Huh? Your person. I'm a person, yeah. I, I'm, including in, I'm, <laughs> I'm including myself in the group of persons who used to do this exercise wrong. Okay. So a prone hamstring curl. Uh, so you're laying down on your stomach, you're, you have your, your hands are on the handles, your feet are on the pads in the back, and you just start loading that puppy up, right? And what you start seeing is first people cut the range of motion short. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you, you see him going from being able to get the, get the pad to 90 degrees to 80, 60, 70, or, or 80, 70, 60, you know, and who knows, maybe 30 for the last few reps. That's the first find, thing. You can find those videos on Jim Fails. <laughs> yeah. And the second thing that they do is that they let their pelvis tilt anteriorly. So kind of, uh, like a cat, the other one. Cat, yeah, cat, and no, cat, cat is like this. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, so camel, huh? Yeah, wait, but cats do, this, cats do this too. Yeah. You know when they're rounding, they round their backs. It's kind of kind of the same thing as camel. Yeah. Well, I meant the one where you arch your back I, like like a. I think it is called cat camel, but you know what I mean. Uh huh. I, maybe it's the cat when it's doing the the opposite stretch where it sticks its butt way up in the air. You know, I feel to like we need a new arch. name for that. But yeah, it's the arch, right? People like, know what we're talking when about when your butt's up in the air. That's <laughs> an anterior tilt. Yeah. And so what's happening there now, you're losing tightness of the hamstrings because you're not anchoring the origin of them. So can you know her hamstrings still grow if you do that exercise like that? Yes. But they're, but you're limiting yourself because you're not doing the exercise properly. You're not, you're not challenging the muscle through its entire range of motion. So that's the, that's the, that's the first thing. And why limit yourself when you have the option to not limit yourself yeah. and get way more out of the exercise that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then the second concept that I learned is when it comes to aesthetics, you know, a muscle has kind of th- three different lengths. You have the muscle in a completely shortened position at mid range, which is its strongest. And then uh, fully lengthened position. So when it comes to aesthetics, you really have to use your scientific knowledge about anatomy to build a well-rounded, well-developed physique. You know, you have, and how, how are you going to apply that to your training? You, you need to select exercises that are going to allow you to stress the muscle in the fully length and fully shortened and mid range. And what happens is that, you know, especially when it comes to the use of machines or even dumbbells for specific exercises. So if, if we take the deltoid, for example, and you're, you're wanting to do a cable lateral race or sorry, a dumbbell lateral race, your delta is going to be the strongest at the bottom of the movement. And it's also going to be the point where there's going to be the less amount of resistance. So that's probably not a good exercise if you're trying to, if you're trying to challenge the fully lengthened position of the delt, right? So a cable, for example, if you step away from the rack a little bit and you're able to adduct your arm closer to your, to your midline and begin having tension at that point, now you're going to be able to uh, really match the resistance curve of the muscle to the machine or, 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 uh, dumbbell or whatever that you're using to train. Now at that point, your muscle is the strongest and also the resistance is going to be the strongest. So that, that would be an appropriate match of resistance profiles. And these are all things, you know, we're, we're basically kind of grazing the surface of how scientific we can get when it comes to bodybuilding, uh, which are all new things for me that are also really interesting because, I come from a background of exercise physiology and sports med and then uh, physical therapy. And the main thing that I always said was that I was having a really hard time understanding things or going from understanding things at the conceptual level and in an individual level to understanding how it applies to the world. Mm -hmm. And this way of thinking is just so eye-opening and it it's just so amazing for any fitness professional, any PT, Cairo, or anyone who's, who's gone into this route. I honestly highly encourage you to, to learn about, to learn about how to properly bodybuild because it really links 
kind of theory with practice, right? Because we learn about muscles in such a uh, segregated way, right? Like we learn to identify the bicep. Where does it originate? Where does it insert? What's it, what's its action? What's it nerve? What, what nerve goes through it? Right. And we learn about all, all of these, these muscles separately. And then we just don't understand. And then we learn about training separately to that anatomy class. And then we don't understand how to link a with B, yeah. you know, we, and there's such a huge emphasis in like quote unquote functional movements. We're so caught on that on that kind of train of, uh-huh. of, of thought. Am I bothering you? Bothering me. Or, body, no, or I'm learning. Uh, boring you? <laughs> no, no, uh, no. Okay. He was just like, uh-huh. This is, this is why people listen to this podcast so they can learn things. But just as a side note to anybody who's listening right now and you're thinking, well, I have a buddy who's super huge and ripped and he doesn't do any of this stuff. Again, to go back to Steffi's point, just because something works at all doesn't mean that it is necessarily the best way dude and there's such a huge divide between like bros in fitness and like the nerds of fitness and i think everybody just needs to learn to dude, coexist dude we uh, and we actually had an amazing conversation about this the other day where i realized that the people who have to work the least for their success in fitness whether it's in bodybuilding or in powerlifting or strongman sure. or whatever like the naturals are the last people who have no academic background in training right. or who have, who have, or who have done, not done much studying to, to educate themselves, to educate themselves yeah, about why right. things are happening and how they're happening and how they can apply that to another person. Those people are the last person you should, last people you should be seeking advice from. And I included myself in that had I not had, um, the, the, uh, the training eight, eight years of eight years of school, right. But schooling, but look, you know, how did I get into, into powerlifting? It's like, Oh, I picked up a bar and I was like, immediately good at it and You're got strong really fast. 1%. Exactly. I, if, if I had no, and, and at that point I didn't, right. Cause when I started doing powerlifting, I was in my first semester of PT school. I still uh-huh. had, uh, didn't have a lot of, or a deep understanding of how training works. And man, I would be the last person you would have wanted to ask for advice. Yet I was the first person people would ask for advice when it came to training because they saw my success and they immediately, they immediately thought that there was some sort of like secret that I had to train that way. And I've been guilty of that myself. When I see another athlete who's doing really well, I'm like, man, I wonder like, you know, what's your secret? Yeah. What do they know that I don't know? And you know what though, but you need both athletes or both types of coaches in this this industry because the way i look at like like the bros of fitness is they're the hipsters of the fitness industry right they're the people who are taking all the risks they're the people who are are going out there and trying stuff and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't when it works we're all like okay yeah this is a good thing and then when it doesn't work we're like uh stupid bros you know the same way it's like with, with hipsters, and you'll grow a long curly mustache, and we'll be like the rest of society. will be like, you know what? We're not on board for that one. We definitely <laughs> you, need you guys them. Are weirdos. We, we definitely need them. I don't. I don't want my <laughs> my comment to be misconstrued at all sure. because we definitely need need both. Like, there's a lot and of it's things. almost like the the bros the bros of fitness are an actual representation of the sample size that we should be using in research. When in re, when what actually ends up happening is that all these research papers that are surrounding the topic of, uh, health and fitness, strength, conditioning, uh, and like more obscure iron sports as well is that they do these research. They conduct this research, these research on people who've had like, just like such an odd demographic. Like when you, when you really dive into the research and look at who they're studying, either the sample size is like ridiculously small or it's completely, um, 
impossible to generalize those findings to an actual an actual athletic population. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, and it also, I mean, there's just so many limitations to these studies. You were saying earlier, it's not necessary. Like there's so many studies looking at what's the best exercise to develop this muscle. Mm-hmm. And there, that's not a thing. No. It's which is the best exercise for you. And are and you doing that, it properly? And the way that you're built and are you executing the proper exercise, the proper way for your body type, you know? And, and, but like I was saying, you need both because you need, sometimes you just need people to try stuff without a research paper involved. And sometimes it works and then that's great. But, and sometimes you, you need to, to prove that certain things work better than others. And also people need to chill with their like research shit as far as like (laughs) like training goes honestly like they need to chill like right now there's a wave of like fitness nerds that think that they know better because like they they read a study you know and and you tell them hey you know this is what i recommend for this but this study says that this and they just completely ignore the whatever advice that you're giving them that's based on other things you know maybe Uh like a lower um a lower, um, great paper, you know, a paper with like that, that, that's, you know, maybe not the best one, but it's a paper they read plus their experience, plus things that they've tried with clients, you know, and they just totally want to bash you because you didn't read this one paper by X, Y, or Z. Uh, The most annoying comment I see is like, if somebody says something and then someone will comment, where's a research paper that proves this (laughs) as if that's the only way that you can validate Anything that you say. Yeah. Let, let's talk about this. I actually have my, uh, my notes pulled out in front of me, like the nerd that I am. Uh, nerd it's, alert. <laughs> it's a, it's a recent paper. Actually, no, it's not that recent came on 2005. Uh, but it's called why most published research findings are false. And I think this is a paper that everyone should read, uh, because it really opened my eyes to just how much is wrong in the research world and just how misleading some of these findings can be, you know? So I'm going to keep this short because I don't want to bore you too much with research, but you know, basically the variables that influence whether or not a study is reliable are things like bias, right? So how is the data analyzed? How is it interpreted? How is it presented? Was it manipulated? Was there a conflict of interest? You know, what just the presentation, how the way that the study was designed, all of those things are bias that can influence the results of a study. Then you have a sample size, which I alluded to, you know, we, in order for a study to be successful and to be accurate or no study is going to be hundred percent accurate, but to be more accurate, you need a large sample size. So you mm-hmm. need thousands of people like good luck finding thousands of powerlifters to test which, or, or bodybuilders to test which exercise is the best. Right. Then you have the effect size, which I found really interesting. Um, you, we talk about, or they talk about, uh, things being statistically significant or not. And it's like, well, okay. It might be, I think we place too much importance on the statistical on statistical statistical significance when it comes to papers. And we have a hard time we have a hard time understanding how that applies to the real world. Like what's statistically significant in a paper might be not significant in real life. Right. Then flexibility. So the ability to standardize our reporting measures so that the outcomes that we find are unequivocal. That was important. Like we need to define a concept universally so that we can all be on the same page. And the first thing that came to my mind was stability and how, cause I've, 
obviously I've been doing a lot. I, I wrote a book with Ian Kaplan about uh, low back pain and a big portion of it was centered around understanding what stability means for low back health, because it's kind of the first advice that you get when you go to a Cairo or a PT is that you need to make your back more stable. Mm-hmm. And that led us to start exploring. How many, how many BOSU balls do I need for that? <laughs> 10. <laughs> And that led me to explore the concept of stability and what it actually means and why, why is that unstable? And, and the definitions varied so much from paper to paper that is really impossible to, to even try to standardize anything from paper to paper. If we're not even chasing, we're not even going after the same thing because we're not on the same page about what stability means. Um, and there's two more. The other one is prejudice. So it could be financial or not, or it could be due to the researchers' beliefs in a theory, or if they're, you know, they're committed to, or they're wanting to suppress uh, another study if they, if it, if it, if it challenges their views or or previous findings. Uh, and the main one that that is so true is when papers are just being published either by professors to, uh, you know, get tenure. Or by even grad students, because as a grad student, you are encouraged to do as much as as a PhD student, you're encouraged to do as much research as you you can, because that looks good on the school. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this happen so many times where, man, we published a paper that was so poorly conducted, (laughs) so poorly conducted, and it got published, you know, and it's like, man, and then people go and read it and then they try to drive conclusions from it, not knowing that like it was literally a half-assed paper just to get graduate. You know, like you have to take those things into consideration. And then this one, when something's a hot topic, like the more research teams there are involved in answering a particular question, then the less likely that study is to be true. Right. And the more varied results you're going to have as well. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know. You just kind of, it's like anything, you just, you have to take it with a grain of salt. You have to understand these concepts yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be able to make up your own mind based on the research that you're looking at in combination with actually practicing these things in, in your daily life or in your training, if it's fitness specific. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, take those things into consideration next time you try to dick slap someone with a research paper that you read or try to disprove <laughs> something that one of the best bodybuilders or, or strongmen or powerlifters or crossfitters tells you that they've done, you know, just, uh-huh understand that research is never perfect. And the fact that you read a research paper doesn't mean that that is, you know, a word from the gods and it's (laughs) a law. It's just a group of people got together, did did a study in the, you know, to the best of their abilities or so I hope, or so I hope. And then they posted something up and they interpreted it in their way. And now you're reading it and then you're interpreting it in another way. So just take it with a grain of salt, you know, don't, don't, don't be, don't be one of those people who just like uses research to try to prove a point all the time. So, yeah, I mean, in summary, we know that a research claim is far more likely to be false than true. And in fact, most of those research paper may be accurate measures of prevailing bias in within the academic world. Yeah. Why don't we dive back into uh, what your experience is? What's your nutrition like now? Has it changed? Yeah. Um, I'm backtracking. So, you know, for the, for the last two, three years, I've been quote unquote eating intuitively to me. All that means is I've, I reached a point with my own nutrition 
where I tracked for such a long time that I was able to, I, I learned and I understood kind of what the energy requirements for my body were depending on my activity level. And I was able to adjust accordingly based on how much or how little I was training to the point where I was able to maintain my weight and actually improve my body composition. Which is what real intuitive eating is. Uh-huh. The intuitive eating that people hear about online is like, I just listen to my body uh-huh. and that's not a real thing. Yeah. My body's telling me to eat cookies 24 seven. I'd be so fat if Same. I, I use that sort of intuitive eating. Same. Yeah. That's, that's actually a really good conversation. Maybe for another time, the difference between true intuitive eating and mm-hmm. actual intuitive eating. Intuitive eating can only be intuitive if you, have a very good understanding of nutrition, which means you likely have had to have tracked your macros pretty strictly in the past to kind of, to steal your phrase, learn the rules before you break the rules. And even like, even understanding, understanding the, the physiology behind hunger signals and what they mean and what they don't mean and how psychology and your environment can influence you to make certain, uh, choices when yeah. it comes to your nutrition, because that is so powerful. Like they've done studies on just people's likelihood of choosing a high calorie sugary drink just because it was readily accessible. Oh, uh, like with placement, uh, placement of vending machines and stuff like that. Yeah. Like in mm-hmm. hospitals or like cafeterias, cafeterias and such. Yeah. yeah. And, and just the fact that they're accessible and at reach makes people makes people consume them more often. And when they change the placement and put water, bottled water right next to the register, then they started seeing people drinking more water and less soda. So it's one of those things that sounds like too simple to have an impact, but it really does. It is. So intuitive eating essentially would be then a combination of a certain level of understanding of the energy requirements that your body needs to perform bodily functions and perform at its best if you're an athlete or you have a hobby or whatever it is. And also understanding the effects of the environment of your own learned behaviors of the psychology behind eating. Um, and, and, uh, the, the hunger signals that your body's sending you and what they mean and what they don't mean, because yeah, the most common argument when it comes to intuitive eating is people saying like, what happened? It's not for you. Oh. <laughs> is people saying like, uh, oh, you know, I got to listen to my body. I'm, I'm going to eat when I'm hungry. And it couldn't be further from the true, you know, like, yeah, obviously hunger is kind of a survival. It's, it's your body's own survival mechanism to remind you to not perish, right. To not just dissolve into the nothing, but it's, to it, continue to, to put food in your mouth so you can sustain yourself. Right. And it's all, but it's also heavily influenced by one, your habits, mm-hmm. what you, do you eat every hour, every day? Mm-hmm. Then you're, that's what you're training your body to think is the norm. And that's why you're going to feel hungry more often than someone who maybe has a better, better habit. And two, the types of food affect the way different hormones uh, uh, are produced in your body. And that affects your hunger as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think it's a, uh, it's a little bit more complex than people make it seem uh, intuitive eating. But yeah, where were we? My diet. Yeah, so... I'm at a point where uh, I was at a point with uh, powerlifting where I could just, I knew kind of how much I could eat and what I needed to eat in order to sustain my body weight and improve my body composition. So prioritizing having protein with every meal was one of the things that I kind of always did and still mm-hmm. do, you know, just making sure I have about anywhere from 30 to 50 grams of protein with, with every meal that I have. 
uh, and being mindful of my fats, just keeping them low, not adding like oils and stuff to my food, uh, eating high quality meat, eating uh, fruits and vegetables, that kind of stuff. Um, now, how that differs from my diet now is obviously a specific goal requires a specific effort, which is something that I talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that if your goal is to drop your body fat from, I mean, I don't know, what do you think I'm at? Like maybe 18 right now, 18% to single digits or close to 10%. I mean, that's not going to happen by accident, right? It's going to require a very specific plan, very specific uh -huh. goals and in and a very drastic manipulation of my food intake. So right now I drove, I'm, I'm eating 200 grams of protein as opposed to 120 or 140 uh -huh. in that range. So 200 Wow. Um, to kind of mitigate some of the hunger uh, because my carbs dropped from 250 to 140 and my fats dropped from 80 to 60. So now I'm at- 60 is still decent. You can still eat uh, yeah, pretty well. Real food. Yeah. You know, I- I, we talked about this one time about how just like when you go to, to IIFYM and by that, I mean like IFYM is if it fits your macros, like people start getting into these patterns of wanting to maximize volume of food. Yeah. Wanting to maximize the volume of food, uh, and keep while keeping the, the calories low. And, you know, I think a lot of the reason why people go on those super low fat diets is so that you can have more volume, right? Like, cause to have 10 grams of fat, like that's <laughs> legit. I don't know. The finger the tip of your index finger is 10 <laughs> grams of fat. You know what I mean? Sure. Whereas 10 grams of carbs, I mean, you can have a whole cup of berries, for 10 grams of carbs, you know, that are, Oh, you're saying why, why people go low fat instead of low carb. Yeah. 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 When it, when also carbs are much more satiating. Yeah. And you know, I guess for some people it works. It didn't work for me. Just, uh, you know, keeping my, my fat too low. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I was going with that, but anyway, yeah. So I'm at 200 protein, 140 carbs and 60 fat. And, you know, not only focusing on, on hitting those macros and on the, on, on the overall calorie amount per day, but also really focusing on health and making sure that I'm maximizing the nutrient density of the foods that I eat. Cause that's another thing that I, that a lot of people tend to neglect and including me when I first started dieting, I mean, that was the pattern, right? You go IIFYM, you're like, like I said, you're trying to maximize how much food you can eat while, while keeping the calories as low as possible. All you want to see is like huge plates with like a huge amount of food. Even when you, when I used to have protein shakes, like we used to make uh fluff. Protein fluff, uh -huh. which is disgusting now That's that I think about classic it. Classic OG IFYM food. Yeah, it's basically. It's a bowl of nothing. It literally <laughs> made me feel a little bit ill. No. Because of how I used much to eat I so ate. so much of that stuff till I was bloated. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Did you put uh, baking powder in there? No. Um, uh, uh, xanthan gum. Xanthan gum. That's what made it like really expand into this big. It was xanthan gum, whatever fruit you wanted. And the, and the, and the powder. And water. And protein powder. And water, and water. Yeah. And, that was, and that it was would it. make a huge bowl of nothing. I had a, a KitchenAid mixer with a giant bowl, like literally bowl bigger than my head. Yeah. And I would fill that thing to the top and just sit there on the couch and eat when I was cutting. And it would have like no calories. Yeah. It would be like 50 protein and that's it. You order protein. however much protein you wanted. A hundred. I would just, yeah, I would load it with, pro with protein and put uh, 
no fat and whatever, like a few berries or something, get a few carbs in there. Yeah. No, I mean, it's crazy. So, so yeah, so my approach is a little bit different now uh, that I've accumulated some experience and I've seen some of the mistakes that uh, a lot of people around me have made and myself, um, you know, not only, not only focusing on the, the, the calories, but also focusing on ensuring that you're consuming a, a you know, balanced diet and healthy foods, uh, and, and always keeping, keeping kind of your health in mind. So basically for me, all that involves is avoiding eating highly processed foods, um, or, or keep them to a minimum. I, I never like to eliminate anything completely from my diet or I, I don't like telling myself that I'm never going to have a certain thing. Well, because as soon as you do have that thing, then you failed. Yes. And that's the problem. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, occasionally I'll have a cookie or I'll have, I don't know, like a, a few like crackers or something like that. But um, I try to stick to real food, really high nutrient value, uh, you know, eat vegetables with every meal eat protein with every meal and that kind of stuff. So I guess that's how my, how my diet has changed. What else is going on? UFC fights. Yeah. Damn. I bet on the fights for the first time in my life. The first time doing any sports gambling ever. And you made like 2000 bucks, eh? Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> not bad on the undercard. I, I bet all statistics, you know what I mean? I like, I was intelligent with it. And then on the main card, I bet, with pure heart just picked all my favorites and uh yeah i did a little better on the on the undercard than the main card but i got some key ones who did we get right so you helped me pick some rose we got right yeah uh masvidal no we lost we lost but i don't we should talk on that because i've kind of changed my opinion when we were watching uh hold on can we go back one second to the to the uh betting yeah betting no no what's it called Betting. Is it betting? Okay, yeah. So the betting. So remember how you were saying that? What were we talking about when we were talking about like people making picks and like risking a ton? Oh well, I well how I think everybody fails at gambling is like all of those apps and sites. They're they're designed to draw you in to make the dumbest decisions, right? So they'll they'll have you'll you know parlaying is the easiest example. So I'm sure most people know, but for those who don't, you can bet, make a bet contingent on the success of another bet. So I could say, you know, I could bet a hundred bucks on Masvidal winning and then parlay that off of also uh, another fighter winning, but he has to do it in the first round and then parlay that off of another fight and someone has to win based on a knockout. And then that multiplies the, the payout of your bet by some ridiculous number, you know? So it's like if X, Y, and Z all happen, you get this enormous payout versus if you just did a straight bet on who's going to win. And that's always how people screw that up. Like some people, I've, I've had people in the past show me their bets and I'm like, how on earth did you even place this bet? It makes no sense. But I think if you're like, fighting's one where sh- there's like wild cards where, you know, obviously someone can get in a lucky punch or someone's off and, and the person who should lose wins. But I think for the most part, if people are placing intelligent bets on those those fights, it's like. What would you consider an intelligent bet? Like, based on what? What's an intelligent bet? So, like, based on, on the undercard, I bet based on uh, one. The undercard has a lot of guys that the fa- the matchup up will be like a guy who has been in the UFC for quite some time 
but hasn't made it past a certain stage. So he's kind of like a gatekeeper for new people coming in. And then a lot of the new people coming in are people from other leagues who have like 10 and 0 records, but they're from some garbage league. Like, mm-hmm. the, you know, like the UFC is like the NFL or something, you know, and then these other leagues are like arena football, you know, like a lower level of football or like CFL or something. So, um, you know, I, like usually, unless it's a, an absolute stud, guys come to the UFC and kind of get a bit of a wake up call. So it's like I bet based on, you know, experience level of the fighter, experience level in the UFC, you know, their their win percentage. You can see like it breaks everything down so you can check their sh- how many punches do they throw around? What's their percentage of punches landed? How, ma- how many uh, punches, uh, how many times do they get hit per round on average? Like all the different statistics, you know, so you know and also the marketing of the fight like sometimes it's very obvious just through the marketing from ufc of who they want to win that fight like they're grooming some some newcomer to like you know this is going to be the next guy and sometimes that's apparent right Mm -hmm. like when conor mcgregor came to the ufc he already had a ton of hype behind him it was obvious that they wanted him to win his first fight you know there's just there's a lot of different things like that where i think you can be pretty intelligent with your betting. You know, it's not it's not like a less than 50-50 chance like when you go play roulette or something mm-hmm. like that, you know. Or a horse race or, you know, something where you don't have a ton, a ton of information. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, I wanted to talk about that Masvidal uh, Usman fight because I was one of those guys who was kind of crapping on uh Usman for being boring and then he had an interview and so many people were upset. Like he was criticized for, for being, he's always criticized for being kind of boring and he was criticized for having a boring title fight. And then, you know, in his interview, he was like, okay, well we're professional fighters, you know, like I'm sorry people come to watch these fights and, and they expect to see a bar fight, but mm-hmm. that's not what this is. It's like, why would I do all this training and uh, you know, put all this effort into you know, us fighting intelligently, which is taking as little damage as possible and inflicting as much as possible mm-hmm. and winning ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, why would I put all that effort into it when, and then come into the, the, the fight. And instead of doing that, just try to slug it out with a guy who's a superior striker. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like, cool, cool. Masvidal is the favorite. So they wanted to see Usman get knocked out, Yeah, but he played, he just totally dominated the fight from start to finish. He fought exactly how he wanted to fight it. And I honestly, I, I don't even think Masvidal was a full training camp because a lot of people were like, oh, he took it on six days notice. So, you know, maybe if he had a full training camp, that, then he, sh- he should have beat him. I don't even think, I think he's just a, a bad matchup for, for Masvidal. I think even with a full camp. No, Usman I think number. here's what I think. I think that going, so Usman was relying on his strategy to beat Masvidal, whereas Masvidal was re- was relying on his striking skills right. alone. So he came in with no real strategy. He was just like, I'm just going to fight this out, right? Like, I'm a good striker. I'm just, like, going to try to knock him out. And he, he, I guess, didn't, what, like, what was he planning on doing if that was Usman's plan? Like, it didn't seem like he came prepared in that sense, like in a strategic sense or tactical sense. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess, you know, had he have had a full camp, then he could have worked on his wrestling a lot more. He could have, uh, you know, 
worked on how he could have got like gotten off the cage more because he goes, you know, pinned against the cage a lot of the fight by Usman. Well, let's see. Let's see if this this changes his training. Yeah. You know, like for me, if I was him, that would be super eye opening. You know, he he got beat because he didn't know how to get out of the the or off the floor. And off the cage. And off the and, cage. Yeah, and, and he didn't know how to just not slug it out with him. Exactly. That- he, you saw, I mean, so he already knew that after the first round, the first five-minute round, he already knew that Usman was, what Usman's plan was. Mm-hmm. It's clear. He he wanted to tame Masvidal, and which is what he said in the interview. Yeah. He wanted to control him by just, like, grabbing him and putting him on the ground so that he didn't strike back at him, right? So after the five-minute round, I mean... I think he should have changed his strategy. Like, I think it's easier said than done. Though. Yeah. And also, you know, in the UFC, you agreed to the fights, right? So Masvidal in the past might have been agreeing to fight a lot of fights that were in his favor that he, you know, thought he had a really good chance of winning. But, you know, maybe this, like, you know, it's a bad matchup. Yeah. It's a bad matchup. And how much, how much additional training and skill can you develop in six days? You know, maybe he just he just doesn't have the takedown defense and that you're the, right. you know, right. doesn't have the, the wrestling. So yeah. I mean that would be something that would go towards, you know, people saying if he had a full camp he'd do better, but it's tough. It's tough. You you didn't uh I don't know. I was rooting for him. He's a Miami guy and Me too. And he's super entertaining and people love strikers in the UFC because that's uh you know, that's the most exciting in my opinion. But it's like if you if you want to just see striking, then go watch kickboxing or boxing or boxing. But yeah. no, people like head kicks and knees too. Mm-hmm. you know, Muay Thai kickboxing. There's lots of professional leagues where you can watch that. But yeah, people always complain when they grapple or wrestle. Yeah, yeah it's important. It's a part, you know, and, I think people and, need to need to. It, it's like a, it's like really smelly cheese. <laughs> you know it's an acquired taste it's an acquired taste like i think you need to <laughs> you need to be open-minded you need to be open-minded and and learn how to enjoy the grappling and the wrestling as well and because it's it's another martial art it's another f- like form of fighting you gotta it, the problem is that people don't understand it and that's why they're adverse to it yeah i, I think I, if if people really like ufc but they struggle to under like to appreciate ground game and stuff like that i think the best thing that you can do is like go take a go take a jujitsu class you know or go take go learn uh freestyle or greco-roman wrestling like do some of those things and just under get a get an appreciation for how difficult they are and how much of an art they are because i think if the, the better you understand those things the the less of the gap the, the or the the more you can decrease the gap between like how entertained you are when they're striking to how bored you are when they're grappling. Right. So what, what was your favorite fight of the night? Uh, Paige or Namahunas. She's such a gangster, eh? Yeah. She's amazing. That honestly, that was the best, the best fight of the, of the whole night. Yeah. By far. And I think this is not just me saying it. I think a lot of people would agree with me. Yeah. That, that fight was exciting. I mean, Wow. Just the, 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 the passion and, and the determination from both fighters was incredible to watch. And I felt like it was so well paired. Like it was a really great match. Yeah. Andrade was good too. Yeah. She was good. They're both good fighters, but Rose kind of proved herself again, mm-hmm. which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the other ones? Uh, Why do you keep trying to remember all the fights that happened that night? I, I'm trying to remember the main card because those were all the, the the you know bigger news ones. Paige took a lot of hate, Vincent. 
Yeah, that's tough. You said something kind of intelligent about what was that. It? Kind of intelligent? Not fully intelligent, just a <laughs> Very, little bit. Well, just about like why she receives a lot of hate. Just because she's uh oh here's the fight here are the fights. Because she kind of doesn't need the UFC to be successful anymore. Like it was maybe a, a starting kind of like platform for exposure for her, but then she she makes way more money doing other things. So people, people tend criticize to, her for that. People People resent athletes who gain notoriety for reasons outside of their athletic capability. So, you know, we tend to, if you're trying to think like, oh, who's like the the greatest of all time, you know, who's the best fighter? What people, what people think about is not only the person who has the most wins, but the person who's the most charismatic that they find, uh, that they, that they can relate to. Like those all play... We're not talking about who's undeniably or objectively right. the best fighter. It's like We're talking about memorable. who's the favorite, who's who's a crowd favorite. And when you're talking about goat or crowd, the greatest of all time, or the crowd favorite, it's not athletic ability. The only thing that's that's a variable. You know, you're also thinking about you know how does this person look? You know, do I like looking at this person? You <laughs> yeah, know, do it I sounds find, funny, but that, it goes. It's that, true. That's part of it. Humans like looking at things. You yeah. know, so do I like looking at this person? Is, is it appealing to me? Can I relate to her, you know, at a, on a personal level or maybe like her journey, her story? Can I relate to that? You know, um, how many years has she been in the game? What was her athletic background? How is she on camera? You know, do I like her personality? Like all of those are things that impact someone's uh, opinion of someone else. So what happens with Paige is that She's gained a lot of notoriety outside of the UFC because she is a, a girl who fights, who also looks very feminine, uh, who's charismatic, who's kind, who who has a at least what she portrays to be a healthy relationship, you know, and people appreciate that. She seems very loving and caring and nurturing. I mean, all of those things are things that impact someone's perception of somebody else. So. I think the problem people have with her is, is, is precisely that. Like they don't, they don't like it when there's other potentially more skilled fighters that are not gaining as much notoriety as her, maybe because of the, 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 you know, aesthetics like physical or, or, or other reasons. Maybe there's a language barrier, you know, that, that some other athletes have that, that make them unable to relate to the crowd. Like they're not that good when they're uh, interviewed. Oh, sure. They don't show their personalities because they don't speak the language. Like there's so much there, but, and that's why, you know, she lost the fight and I, I hate to see that. Like it really upsets me because I've, I've been a victim of that as well. Mm -hmm. Like when you're a fan favorite and, um, and you're going to compete oftentimes, obviously if you're a fan favorite, a lot of people want to see you win, but there's also a lot of people which, who are often the most vocal, who want to see you fail. Mm -hmm. And who are happy that you failed almost as if to use it as proof of, of how less skilled you are against an opponent. You see, I told you Paige wasn't the best in her, in her weight class. It's like, man, she had one loss, you know, whatever. Like she broke her arm four times, three, three times before this. Yeah. And then she tapped out on an arm bar. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> come on, sense. man. Like she tapped out on an arm bar. Like even if she wouldn't have broken her arm, like that's, yeah. you would have, anyone would have tapped out. Yeah. If, so, anyway. if someone... It's unfortunate. You, in an you have to tap out. It's unfortunate. Or your elbow gets snapped. Yeah. What I hate to see is like all those negative comments on her page is just like so uncalled for and so like childish as well. Yeah. You I know, agree. and it hurts, man. It hurts. Like, I don't think people, people think about this when they're writing those comments there. It's like, 
as athletes, we dedicate our entire life to this one sport, you know, to getting better at this one thing. We sacrifice everything, our relationships, our health, our mental health, our, our, your enjoyment, like what you eat and drink and your trips. You, you don't go to trips. Like, you know how many bachelorette parties I've missed and how many weddings I didn't go to because, because either it conflicted with a meet or like it came in the middle of a block or whatever it was. Uh-huh. So it's like people just are so quick to write anyone off for whatever reason. And then. And then think that for whatever reason, they have to express their opinions at the expense of really hurting someone else's feeling or, or like making someone feel worse than they already do. It's like, you think she doesn't feel bad about losing that fight already? She does, you know? Mm -hmm. And then here are all these like thousands of people who are commenting about, you know. I wonder if it's all gambling addicts just lashing out. No idea, man, but it's so ugly. Don't do that, people. Like that, it (laughs) makes. It's a public service announcement. Yeah. Emergency press conference. Emergency press conference. (laughs) Here, Dr. Cohen speaking. Don't do that. Don't be an asshole. Yeah. But you know what? There's, there are some people who are, it's, it's weird because you see the two sides of it. Like Paige Van Zandt, super popular, receives a ton of hate, right? But then you have a guy like uh, Max Holloway, super popular, almost can do no wrong like people love that guy that guy lost and everyone's like no he won and he's like well he actually lost and then even dana white is going on there being like uh you know i think the judge is messed up you know holloway won you know i'm upset with the judging well there's always that guy it's like you you're just like the like one of the most likable likable guys you're too kind (laughs) too kind but thank you i'll take it yeah you're welcome (laughs) what is true Uh, yeah. Damn, I won massive points there. I just praised you on live podcasting. I know. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on my LinkedIn. Yeah. I put it on my resume too. Just kidding, I don't have one. Um I don't know if it's an old video, but I saw a video of Platinum Perry punching an old dude. Oh, I saw that. Oh, oh shit. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, there was a meme that came out? He got kicked out. out. He got kicked out. Yeah, well, because, got, not because of that. Well, you know what he said? He said he. Like his defense was that he's been struggling with alcoholism. So, and he was, you know, under the influence at the time and he's got some anger issues. He's got to do a bunch of like work on himself and he's committed to, to going and doing that. And the UFC said that that's good that he's doing that. But like until his stuff sorted out, they're not giving him any more fights. Was it because of that or because of what, she, what he said? No, it was he, he, he said the N word in that video a bunch of like times. three or four times. But, the, the way that you can no, – this doesn't justify it, but also I think people pretend they don't understand context a lot, which is super annoying. That is true. And like, okay, don't say that word. But also if you're not a moron, you can watch that video and see that he's saying it to a white guy and that there's obviously <laughs> – like no intended racism. He's just maybe uneducated and, you know, ignorant to kind of how sensitive that is right now. Yeah. It's just not socially like, acceptable and, and dude, to a, say that he, anymore. He's also a guy who fights for a living. Like, what do you, what, he's not the president, man. Cut this guy some slack. We have no, his upbringing could have been insane. He just totally <laughs> yeah. is, is. For all we know, he, who knows lived where on he the street his yeah. whole life, never had any education, never had Legit. any exposure to anyone who, you know, he doesn't understand how, how negatively impactful yeah, it is. Yeah. And that goes back to our conversation about cultural background. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like you we, know what's in the States. Yeah, we, we we talked about that with who? Was it with Alexandra and... Um, Janae. Janae. Yeah, yeah, right? So it's like... And it's really important. I mean, I don't know how many of the people who are listening to this episode listen to to that episode that I'm, that I'm talking about. But, you know, a lot of people who live in the States and never go out, like, 
travel or go anywhere or meet people outside of their kind of social bubble don't understand the impact that your that your upbringing can have on your understanding of society sure. and of just culture, how people behave. So the example that Alexandra and I were saying, Alexandra is a friend of mine from Venezuela. We were saying that, you know, growing up in Venezuela, the we experienced a totally different environment when it comes to like social classes and and racism even you know we it, it just kind of almost didn't exist honestly like the 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 fact that we were all hispanic or all venezuelans was what united us mm-hmm. and there's such a strong sense of patriotism and of belonging to the hispanic community and to the venezuelan community that that, that we didn't see color. Like it sounds so cliche, but we really didn't see color. It's like everyone would call uh, everyone else the N-word in Spanish, like as if it was like a completely normal thing, you know, like no one was discriminated based on color. You know, we had, we had black professors, we had, you know, black doctors, black, whatever lawyers, like it was all so normal to us that moving, that moving to the States was such a shock in that sense, because we didn't understand the, we didn't understand the culture and the history, you know? So, so I think like some people need to honestly, like understand where people or try to understand where people come from. And, and I'm not saying accept it, but caught people some slack and change their approach, you know, like. And quit trying to make yourself the judge, jury and executioner. You're not that important. Yeah, just I mean, let people make mistakes and say sorry and then say and then move on okay yeah accept the life. apology i think that that's the most important yeah. part like people <laughs> need to people need to learn to discern when people are being genuine about an apology and like are truly like truly acknowledge that they had made a mistake and that they're not gonna do that again and that movie you know that that they truly like are are feel bad about what they said or what they did and then once you've figured that that apology is genuine, then you move on. You don't keep nagging at someone's like open wound. Like you've already said what you said. The person apologized. Now it's time for you to move on. You know, like you don't need to cancel anyone. As when when the person when the person can acknowledge they did something wrong, that's it. That's the end of the argument. Mm-hmm. So I think you know we, we all need to practice. This is this is a time of of a lot of emotional turmoil with everything going on with the pandemic and, and with the riots and, and, and everything else. I mean, the world seems to be falling apart, but you know, I think being, being proactive and being an activist and, and, and speaking and speaking up against injustices is all extremely important. But at the same time, I think that we can't forget to be compassionate and be, be kind to each other and be patient and be forgiving because ultimately that's, what's going to make a difference. Not a world full of resentment and hate and anger and arguments, you know, like, yeah. And people patting themselves on the back for calling out other people. Exactly. So I think love above all, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. I wanted to sing about Marley's song. I always have a song in the back of my head. Yeah. What's a song about love? Yeah. Well, what's the one? What's the one? No. I can only think right now for some reason about, I shot the sheriff. But that has nothing to do with this conversation. But anyway. You're done? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know what other fight made me sad? No. Uh, Jose Aldo. 
and Peter Jan. I really wanted Aldo to win. He's such like an OG, and he was looking juicy. Eh? He was looking like pre-USADA Jose Aldo, the good old days. I don't know why, but I'm just not interested in that one. Why? Well, it's because you're a fake fight fan. She's like, you're a casual. You're a... Honestly, that upset me so much. Yeah? Yeah. I got you into this. What are you t- I've been watching this since I was a kid. Yeah, since you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? Me and my friends used to all chip in and, and buy the UFC fights back when they were only on pay-per-view. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah. You're, you're asking for trouble, pal. Jose Aldo, he says. Josie Aldo. Jose Aldo. You know he's not even Hispanic. Bro. He's not, even, he's not even Spanish speaking. Sorry. He's probably of, of he's Hispanic Brazilian. descent. Yeah, okay. He's Hispanic. But he's, Jose he Aldo. speaks Portuguese. Don't care. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I, hey, you know what? Caesar got um, the Florida man for us. Okay, go ahead. Florida man hospitalized after iguana runs into bike causing crash. Oh, my God. Was this a motorcycle or a bicycle? <laughs> a bicycle. <laughs> oh, dude. Remember when you were a kid and uh, and someone would be biking? Tell me if you ever did this. No. And you'd have a stick. Sometimes you'd be playing no. like. Really? No. Dork. Okay. So this is what would happen. You'd stick it in someone else's wheel. You stick it in, in between the spokes. So it chokes their, their tire. And if you do it in the front one, they go woo right over the handlebars. That's terrible. <laughs> you never did that? No. Oh man. You, you grew up soft. That's borderline delinquent. No, we used to, when well, we were pranking each other all the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You call it prank. I call it delinquency. Yeah. Well, well, you're a delinquent. We'll go yeah. into your stories another okay. time. But yeah. Uh, oh yeah. So <laughs> what? If, what if that's what happened to the guy with the iguana? What if it ran into his spokes, <laughs> got choked up in the tire? Hey, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Flying. What month is this? July? Is this July? Are we in July? Yep. I don't even know anymore. But yeah, we're in July, which means the land is heating up, which means all the crazy creatures are coming out to play here in Florida. Yeah, like Dexter had a bufo toad the bro, other day. Bufo toads, snakes. Oh yeah, so too. a couple snakes, um, iguanas, all over the place. The squirrels are like fearless now. They're like, bitch, we're coming out. <laughs> Legit, they like just stay there in the middle of the road as I'm approaching them with my with my seventy pound hunting dog, and they're like, what? Peacocks too. Peacocks are pretty fearless. <laughs> yeah, peacocks. What's up with them? They don't even care about the cars in this neighborhood. No, I don't give a they shit. They just stand there. You'll honk at them and they'll just look at you and be like, "What?" Okay. Yeah, it's rough. It's crazy. So there's like Jurassic Park where we live. Basically. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm out of stuff. You want to call it there? Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Whoa. What? Do you get a stroke? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. Think about a lot about it. That's what you said. <laughs> All right, that's it. Okay, bye. Bye.